A common theme in this season is using new machines. New production hosts, but they are not made of steel or flesh, and they are way smaller. This could be cells or fungi like yeast, or bacteria used as machinery. So it becomes possible to produce certain ingredients more efficiently. Another machinery that is pretty well known to us humans are plants. We are used to extracting, for example, pigments, proteins and oils from them. Plants naturally produce these, but what if plants could also produce milk proteins or animal fats? This is called molecular farming. Most likely, no way of conventional breeding will make a plant produce milk. You do need genetic engineering. Genetic engineering means taking DNA from a different organism, in this case a mammal, and inserting this DNA into a plant. This is different from gene editing like CRISPR, where you only edit the existing DNA without taking foreign DNA. You will hear from Amos Paul Freyman, the co-founder and CEO of Miruku, a New Zealand startup. At first, you will hear how a biotech company realizes, oh, it's a food company. Then we cover the molecular farming technology and process and end with some thoughts on whether GMOs should be labeled. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. You have an U in your company name, Miruku. So in, in Germany, we would be like Miruku. That's kind of right. Yeah. So it is like Miruku rather than Miruku. And it's actually the Japanese word for milk, if you were to sound it out in a phonetic way in Japan. So that's where the name came from. When I first was starting the company, I wanted to call it, you know, something very serious, like deep technology biosciences or <laughs> I don't know, something like this, because I thought that was like, it made it sound very smart. And I had some good feedback from, oh, actually we had some argument between us as co-founders and I was like very much this guy that wanted to be very serious and we would have kind of like a, a DNA strand and it was like, well, you should wear your suit jacket to work and, we're, we're, <laughs> you know, we're a serious company. And then I really was challenged on that and like, like, no, no, like what you're doing is quite scientifically complex, but people that eat food aren't necessarily wired that way. And so you've got to think about trying to make it a little bit more friendly and interesting and exciting for people that are actually going to engage with the end product. And that was actually a bit of a revolutionary moment for me because then I realized that it was like, ah, oh, so just doesn't matter if investors and experts in various fields think that this is a good idea and will work. Like we still have to find a way of communicating it to business to business buyers at trade shows and to end consumers. And Maruku felt like a little bit more fun, a little bit more approachable than deep technology biosciences. So that's kind of why that's kind of why the name origin is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I constantly meet companies that go through this transition of being a biotech company and then realizing, oh, wait, we're a food company, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's hard also not to have a Eurocentric approach. So I was in Singapore over last week for the FHA Expo and I did a presentation there on 
molecular farming as a, a new concept for many of the people. In fact, in the room, there was about a 450 delegates and I was asking who's heard of this technology before and very few people had. And it's then again, another challenge to communicate in a language that there is just a, a simple barrier as well. It gets complex in like the nomenclature between plant-based dairy proteins that are produced in plants. Nobel Foods has this terminology they like to call plant-grown proteins. And then, of course, mm. plants already have their own proteins. And so it's one thing to discuss this with someone that English is their first level and they have a sort of an interest in context to the different technologies. And then it's another to like a B2B buyer at a trade show that just wants to know practically what's in the ingredient, what does it do in a food product, how much will it cost and when can I buy it? And so it's an interesting, interesting challenge. Yeah, it's meeting uh, the actual requirements of the market suddenly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's right. Damn it. We have to sell to consumers. <laughs> but that's also like... Uh, no, or we, B2B, right? So yeah, you, yeah. you can go both routes. But what I've found is that with B2B, which is the main target strategy that we have, given the idea that from some of my past experience, it is a different skill set and it really is a new challenge to build a consumer brand and to build relationships with retailers and mm -hmm. supermarket outlets. So we have to decide, are we really into food marketing, food branding, food distribution game, or we are in the technology game? But then to add like another nuance of challenge to that is that the consumers, B2B buyers, the existing sort of large food companies, they want to see to believe. And so there's no shortcut to getting immediate prototype and feedback from market from doing your own food product because no one goes, oh, you know, delicious. There's a protein. There's a almost mm -hmm. molecularly identical dairy protein. I would love to eat that. It's like they want yogurt and cheese and whipped cream. And so you have to also show the value of the engineering behind the protein by putting it into a format with which people are comfortable and familiar with. And then they create a bit of momentum and you can show that as traction to a larger food company. You can say, don't trust us that people will buy these things. We've released this initial prototype and there's a, a huge amount of interest and traction. I think not unlike what it seemed Perfect Day did with their initial kind of own ice cream launch and then now they've moved forward with their original kind of strategy, which was to be this Intel inside business to business provider and they see the announcement with Nestle and Mars where they're kind of going, well, you guys are the expert food companies and food manufacturers. We have a deep technology and expertise and patents in producing these animal-free dairy ingredients. Let's partner to make the best progress with who has the best skill set for the different parts of the value chain. So that's yeah, an interesting challenge. As a side note, Nobel Foods N-O-B-E-L-L -L is another company using molecular farming to create milk proteins. And Perfect Day is a precision fermentation company that produces dairy protein by using yeast. You'll find more info on this Intel Inside business model in the introduction episode to this season. Let's talk about computational biology, which is something that you also use, and molecular farming. We have covered biomass fermentation, precision fermentation, gas fermentation. So how does this differ from what you're doing? 
So those are all really great technologies and computational biology, I think, plays a role in most of those technologies. I know for ours, what Maruku is doing is taking dairy protein, genetic information that's usually processed by a mammal to produce certain proteins. We're taking that information and we're programming it into plants. And so there's a level of R&D that needs to go into deciding, well, you know, plants they read information and they express proteins in different ways to animals. So what is it that we need to do to create these information constructs to give to plants so that plants can express the dairy proteins in a proper or more functional way? And that's where computational biology is super useful. So you have open source tools like AlphaFold from DeepMind, and you're able to, in silico, run thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different models whereby you can create a protein with slightly different structures and run it through AlphaFold to predict how it might actually fold or how it might express inside a plant as opposed to how it would naturally express inside a mammalian system. And it's also a good differentiating point is that uh, I used to sometimes explain molecular farming by saying you're taking a piece of information from an animal and putting it in a plant, but people got the idea that you were then harvesting genetics from an animal and putting it into a plant, but we're not doing that, to be clear. We're looking at well, what is the information that's given to that mammal to produce that milk protein, and then we're synthesizing it to express it and optimize it to be expressed in plants. And so computational biology is a super tool of making sure that we can do as much of the R&D trial and error outside of the physical biology, which is always one of the reasons I think why the precision fermentation has been so popular as opposed to working with biotechnology and plants is that yeast have a really short half-life and so things can happen really quickly. You can go through iterations, you could produce small amounts of material, whereas with plants, of course, the growing cycle, especially when you're stably transforming them into a like a row crop plant, this takes many months. And so for people that are impatient or want to just show investors a little bit of progress or protein, then it's a slightly different time horizon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So computational biology refers to the use of data, modeling systems, etc. in biology. What role does AlphaFold play? So if you maybe have some info, we all know that Google is putting all its fingers into all nooks and crannies of all industries. But when did AlphaFold come on the market and how did it influence the development of the field? So Google's been working through their lab DeepMind for quite some time. I think as early as 2014, they were working with protein folding. And it's been a scientific challenge for many years is to try and create a database of the different ways that proteins can fold so that you can have a simulation or a model without needing to do it in a physical sense. So that was designed for drug discovery and pharmaceutical purposes. And then over time, with the interest in biotechnology applied to the food industry, I think a number of companies are now taking advantage of the platform. And it's open source. And so there's always the question of what happens to that data and who owns that data. And of course, you have to give and take a bit to train the model and to get the best benefits from it. Essentially, the really valuable part of any company's IP that's working with computational biology is their own internal data sets. So even if you're putting small amounts of data into you know, an open source system and using it as a tool, it's 
still not going to be a, an open access to all of your data. It doesn't matter how clever the tool is or the learning algorithm or the model that you have. Really, it's the power of having data to put into it and train it so that you can optimize it to get the results out. And it's also, I heard it described by one of our scientists as data interrogation. <laughs> it sounds kind of, kind of you imagine kind of like some numbers locked in a room tied to a chair and you're kind of like asking them. It sounds very harsh, but it's to reflect the idea that it really is a discipline where even when you have the data in the model, you still have to really know the right questions to ask to get the right answers. So most people go, why I know what the answer is I want, but they don't think too cleverly about the question. And so it seems so much of it is about understanding how do I frame or how do I ask the question the right way so that I get an answer that's better or more accurate. So it's a, yeah, an interesting terminology. Interesting. Yeah. Just sorry that I was like looking over because uh, like the door is closed and then the door was like was moving and I was like, I don't know how my cat is doing that. Yeah, paranormal activity. A protein fold that became alive and is rebelling <laughs> yeah, against against yeah. all of this data interrogation. <laughs> or otherwise, we've, like, we've said the word like Google and data too many times. Yeah. And maybe when you do that, you, you activate these kind of men in suits that <laughs> come to your house. Yeah, there used to be this, these witch movies where you have the letters on a board and the stone oh, yeah, is moving yeah. over the letters and like writing. And so this is what's happening when you say Google and, and uh, big data too often. <laughs> You're yeah, summoning. Exactly. You call up some Google spirit. Well, it's strange. <laughs> like that, it's just a strange tagline for an organization. Google's tagline is do no evil, which... <laughs> Just like a kind of a, like, it sounds like what a like criminal must, like a, a mega mind evil person would say. Each episode takes many dozens of hours of work. Please share Red to Green with your colleagues on Slack, Discord, or Teams. Or share one of your favorite takeaways on LinkedIn and link to the episode in the comments. Every protein has an intricate 3D shape. This folded shape defines its function and how it works. If you unravel a protein, it's like a chain made of amino acids. The protein is folded due to interactions between the amino acids. We know of more than 200 million proteins, and AlphaFold by Google contains the structures of over 100 million. So it's, it's, protein folding is the physical process by which the protein information is transformed into a 3D structure. So it's like where the information joins the physical world. And so when you think about the physical world, it's information comes from a, a dimension whereby it's bits and bytes equivalent for the biology world or software code, and it turns into the physical world. Proteins, that's where folding happens. And it's really important that if you've ever done origami, that you get that folding correct. <laughs> because if you have, if you someone hands you one of those like beautiful swans or whatever it is that you could make, and then they're just like, yeah, here's a piece of paper. And then to, to get from that piece of paper to that swan, it's folds. And so it is a really important part of the whole protein dynamic. And so we're really excited to see the next generation of companies that are working on to produce fats for the food industry as well, because I tried some sort of ice cream that had a recombinant protein and actually it was delicious and it was good, but you still missed that kind of mouth coating feel of creaminess. So I think the next evolution of this 
biotech space will be the combination of those two components, especially in dairy, because then you really do have something that is like a dairy product rather than just a very clever building block with then some other pieces chucked on top. You have the kind of two core components of what makes milk solid. And the really interesting thing is here in New Zealand, 95% of all of the dairy that we generate as fresh milk, the first thing that happens is that then energy needs to be applied to it to actually evaporate off 87% of it, which is the water. So you have this really, you do have this strange situation in the dairy industry where for so many things, you're putting so much water onto the land and to the animals, and then they're producing milk. And then the first thing you do with milk for many applications for the end use and food industry is you evaporate off all that water. It's a super inefficient system. One thing that I would address though is even though there's inefficiencies in the dairy industry, it's also the future of food has to be a more diverse system of production. And so I know Nobel Foods and ourselves, we're all indicated and it's publicly available. One of the kind of target crops that we will be working with to introduce our proteins into is soybean. And you look at the soybean industry and it's already such a like a massive behemoth of a of a system. And you have to ask yourself, is the best route to success continuing to solidify in the reliance on a certain number of crops or a certain number of animal species? And so one of the things that we're really aware of is that, again, we don't want to let perfect be the enemy of good and we're moving forward with some of these crops but that we also have an interest in wondering what else is in the plant kingdom that we could discover and use and engineer to be let's say it's not identical to dairy but it has some special functionalities that are similar or perhaps even better in some regards can we find a way to commercialize those and build them into our business why soybean? Is there the most data and research on it already? Or is there something specific to the plant that makes it so great for molecular farming? So I think there's a few different aspects to soybean. One thing I should say first on like traditional molecular farming is that most of the proof of concepts and then commercialization was using non-food molecules produced in a non-food plant. So if you look at sort of everything that happened from the late 1980s onwards in the molecular farming space, it was producing human monoclonal antibodies and vaccines and tobacco leaves. And actually my co-founder in Maruku, Dej Shasayov, he 15 years ago started working on producing the human collagen in tobacco leaves and actually took that company all the way through to being listed on the NASDAQ and it's listed mm -hmm. there still today called Coal Plant. But that was the kind of pharmaceutical era of molecular farming and this is the food era of it. And when you look at soybean, it's already genetically modified in so many different ways and so many different geographies. Then you also have a huge, as you rightly pointed out, you have a huge amount of publicly available data talking about the different modifications and consequences, both intended and unintended, that it has on the plant physiology. So you have a great base of knowledge to start with, which is publicly accessible that you can build on top of. And then you have a number of like universities and research contract centers that have experience and knowledge for years of working with soybean. And then you have the infrastructure and processing assets and I guess logistics and farmer grower networks and seed companies. And so you have this whole system set up where you can 
plug into with your kind of unique trait, which in our case is a dairy protein. And then you're able to at least minimize the necessity for a huge amount of cost of capex and other parts when you're working with the existing system. So I think all of those reasons combine to say, yeah, that makes a good first target. And then I do think that the future for molecular farming in the food industry is not just going to be limited to soybean. It just is a natural first step. After our interview, Amos wrote me, and I will just read this message here, because though soybeans have all these benefits, they decided to go a different road now. Hi Marina, I thought I would drop you a quick note to say that prior to our call, we had been exploring experimenting with several orphan crops to use as our primary plant expression system instead of soybeans. Since the call, we have decided to prioritize our orphan crop program Soybean is easy, but adding value to some of these lesser known crops can actually make an additional huge impact on the food system. Reduction of glyphosate, use of marginal land, crops that grow in higher temperatures. The ability to rethink the traditional trades to optimize rather than using the existing stack. Anyways, I thought I should tell you because our conversation helped secure my conviction. End to quote. Well, I was happy to read that genetically modified soybeans are usually made to be resistant to certain herbicides, oftentimes against the herbicide Roundup by Monsanto or other glyphosate-based herbicides. In our next season, we will cover the issues associated with Monsanto and conventional plant GMOs in detail. Yeah, maybe we can make a parallel between precision fermentation and molecular farming and point out what the differences are. So let's imagine from the perspective of somebody who would get into molecular farming, right? The first step with what would you start? You would think about what you need, what you want to produce, then figure out the right protein, then figure out the right host plant. What is that pathway? You start with the end goal in mind. If you're wanting to make a functional food protein, you start with looking at the structure, looking at the characteristics of what that delivers, and then you decide what sort of a cost is that you know, is that a commodity? Is that a very special niche ingredient? And food, it generally was going to be a commodity. So then you need to think, okay, I need to produce this at a certain amount of scale with which to achieve an economic model where I can compete with the existing production. So then, of course, you aren't going to want to look for plants that are able to grow in lots of different geographies, can grow into a certain size and produce a certain amount of protein naturally in the plant or if it's a, a fatty acid then are naturally going to produce a certain amount of these oils in the plant so you say okay so we've got a cost target we need this kind of scale and then you look at what does an end consumer think and so there's some really cool crops like lupin which you look at and you think, oh, that's, you know, that would make a great host. And then you look a little bit deeper and you see there's some allergen issues in lupin, which make people hesitant to adopt it as a food ingredient. And so then you have to think perhaps that's not the, the best host to then use. And you also think about what is the plant currently used for and what would the processing infrastructure be that plant would fit into. If you take a new plant as a host and there's not a lot of processing facilities or not a lot of growers that know how to grow it or not a lot of seed producers that are comfortable to bulk up and grow seed for it, then you have a bit of a challenge where even if it's a great host, there's no existing infrastructure or knowledge with which to scale it. 
So when you kind of weigh up those different considerations, it's not a huge surprise where people end up in terms of picking a well-known row crop that is a great producer of protein and oil and has a wide body of knowledge for growing it and processing it. And you were saying you can produce a variety of different ingredients. There have been pharmaceutical ingredients produced with molecular farming. Now you're producing casein. Casein or- and whey. And whey. So the basis for dairy. What are the boundaries of it? What else could you produce with it? You mentioned fats before. Yeah, so I think already when I say fats, plants, oil seeds have naturally producing oil and some cases, they've already been modified to have higher oleic or a, a certain oil content that is proven to be beneficial for cholesterol or heart health. So there's already been modifications of the oil for sort of health purposes. And so you can do both. The only challenge is when you think of a poor little plant, he's already got a job to do that nature's designed them to do. When you then begin to add additional information, every layer of information that then is added creates a more of a energy demand on the plant. Mm. And if you overload it to a certain point, the plant will start to forget to do things. So maybe it won't shoot properly, or maybe it forgets to produce certain types of natural defense mechanisms that would protect it from pests or protect it from, from diseases. So the plant as a workhorse, there's almost no limit to what can be achieved, but you have to take care of the plant because otherwise you'll just end up with a plant that's so stressed and overloaded with new information that it can't do its even most basic job. Yeah, yeah. it's startup founders don't burn out your employees and molecular farming uh, founders don't burn out your plants. Be nice nice to your plants. Like they are our our little workers. Like give them some like paid time off and offer a fridge with drinks and a ping pong table. (laughs) Just like us, you do, you need to keep them hydrated and and keep them fed with great soil and so on. It it, it is a a lighthearted way of looking at it, but it really does does point to a a more complex problem, which is to express more and more protein in these plants, you sometimes have to make compromises for other things. And so something we're really careful about is having that approach where it's do no harm. It reminds me of uh, something we had in the food history season where it was about uh, confusing potatoes because the potatoes from Latin American continents were very confused by the European weather. In Japan, there's like the philosophy where you see everything has a soul like you treat things like they have a soul it's not just the living moving beings like for a long time we didn't believe that dogs or even longer pigs and and other mammals have feelings and therefore we wouldn't treat them properly but now i think we're getting to the point of maybe recognizing that plants have feelings and they like classical music and stuff so (laughs) why not (laughs) and let's get into one thing specifically you said that allergen issues of lupin caused you to consider ah maybe not lupin but i'm wondering how much of the actual plant product ends up in the product that you're selling because if the actual plant is not in the product, then why would you worry about that? So there's kind of two aspects to it. There's the one where if you imagine an oil seed, it has a certain amount of protein in and then a certain amount of oil. So if you want to, let's say, create your target protein within the existing body of native proteins in the plant, then that's a, a good target to make. And then you still have 
oil left over. And so you can still sell that oil and use it. One of the like philosophies that I think most of the companies in this space want to bring forward is like whole of plant utilization. So making sure that we're not just using plants as a disposable kind of bioreactor, but we're saying plants already make some really good materials for lots of different uses in the world. Let's just piggyback our protein along for a ride to create even more value from them. That's why we're very considerate of what will happen with the rest of the plant material, even if it's not going to end up in our ingredient, because we would hate to create a, a system that has another level of unnecessary waste. So we're, we're very careful to think about that from the design point from day one is how can we make sure that any of the energy and space and land and water that's used is going to produce something. Let's try and make sure we can find a use case for as much of it as possible. This is interesting because if we contrast it to other technologies in the space, one challenge is the inputs, right? Mm. Cellular agriculture, tissue engineering needs certain inputs. Precision fermentation needs certain inputs biomass, yeah, as well. And all of them don't have the responsibility, you could say, but also not power over their inputs. So they're starting, you can say, but later in the process. Whereas for you, or it seems to me like you would be both a farming company and a biotech company. So would you stay with this approach that you actually have like your own fields or would you contract farmers to do it? Or how would it look like? It's a really good question. And that strikes at the heart of the business model again, which is, do you want to be a, a food company? Do you want to be a technology company? Do you want to be an agricultural production company? And what, one thing that I know for sure is it's very hard to be very good at all of those things. So it goes back to where do we see the value that we create? And that's in the technology. And so we would look to contract growers. And it's quite a an interesting process whereby working with a crop that's known first off is quite useful because you can sit down with growers and farmers and they basically walk them through this is how it would be planted this is how it is processed these are the kind of typical inputs and they go oh that's very much like what we do now so i think that's also something i love about maruku and the, the technology is that it does allow us to engage right at the start of the, the agricultural production if we look at the whole GMO genetic engineering topic, you were saying that there are already a lot of different genetically modified varieties of soybean, and some of them may be better for your use case than others. So I guess you are using a GMO crop as a basis. And then what you're doing to it is adding another level of genetic engineering. I'm wildly assuming maybe you can differentiate what is GMO genetic engineering Genetic modification is the standard kind of coverall term. And you'll hear more recently that there's been this change to gene editing. And like gene editing is internally, you're making changes to the plant, but you're not actually adding in any additional information. With GMO, you are adding in additional information that isn't there already. And so we're undertaking a, a GMO process. But the interesting part is that, you know, many people in New Zealand, which is, as you might know, is like fiercely anti-GMO. Uh, many, many people in New Zealand, you ask them a question of, have you ever con you know, considered eating GMO foods? And there was like, no one will put their hand up and people will just start shaking their heads. Then you say, you know, who, who's eating these Aztec corn chips? 
and then like the whole room puts their hand up and then you go, well, mm. did you know that the corn ingredient that's in the, this chip has come from genetically modified corn plant? And so there's a kind of a collective, like, what have we done? But it's like, that's the level of confusion and, and challenge that we have in trying to communicate with consumers because they will, will sign a, a kind of a, a survey and they say, no, we don't want GMO foods. They go down to their local supermarket and they buy some, some corn chips and then they make the salsa at home and they love it. Yeah, I think also, again, borrowing from a different field, uh, informed consent is something that you could apply to the food industry in this <laughs> case. And in our food industry as a whole, I think the issue is that we do not have informed consent. People do not know what they're eating. Sometimes they don't want to, Some, but I think it generally the rule should always be they should have the possibility to rather easily understand if they want to, if they want to know how these grapes were grown or how these tomatoes were grown uh, under what conditions. Also, on the other hand, there's the importance of having these internal industry ethics, right? If we consider that in reality, a lot of people will not research this technology and they do not understand it. We need to challenge ourselves, look at the downsides, look at the drawbacks, look at the future issues of the technologies and look out for the health and the well-being of the consumers. We don't have the time to double check everything we are eating. And a bit of that needs to come, ideally it would come from better regulation, but in reality it comes from hopefully individuals and food companies that go the extra mile to ensure that. And just to round it off to understand the full process that Miracle is doing after you have the crops grown, in this case, the soybean, what happens? You, you harvest it and then you need to process it into the actual final casein and whey, and you need to probably do some kind of extraction. What is this extraction process and purification process like? The extraction and purification process is anchored to what is the functionality or the nutrition of the end ingredient that you're trying to achieve. If you need a, a set of casings that are going to be highly functional and are going to be able to assemble into the native micelle formation to create cheese, then you're going to have to have a, an extra step of processing and purification. If, however, you say what we want is we just want to have a dairy protein that enables, let's say, a cheese that can sustain higher temperatures that it can be cooked at without either dissolving completely but melting nicely, you can say maybe we can actually only semi-purify it and we have a protein concentration process whereby then you have a fraction which includes your dairy protein targets but also some native plant protein and then you have an ingredient that is both of that. And that's, of course, a second, like a secondary process from the initial crushing of the oil seed to get oil and protein. But it's still not such an intensive energy process as purifying it completely. Because if you think about a typical, like historical molecular farming process, it was such tiny compounds of extremely powerful, like bioactive molecules that you couldn't have anything else in there with that. You had to have an absolute purification isolation process. With the food, and ingredient targets, you can say, actually, it's not going to be the end of the world if there's some plant protein in there as well. As long as the ingredient as a fraction delivers what the food manufacturer wants, then that's the beauty of it is that's the level of refinement that it would need to go to. 
If you haven't already, take a second now to download some more episodes of Red to Green so you can listen to them when you're commuting, multitasking, or end up on a deserted island without Wi-Fi. Also, we appreciate a review on Spotify Mobile. It's super easy. You just go to the overview page of the podcast and click on the star. So far, we have a flat 5.0 star rating. Whoop whoop. Thank you, peeps. A special thanks to our senior editor, Celeste Gupta, Nikhil Manon for a second review and Robert Griffin for tinkering with the website. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.